All right, as we come to our text today, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as you know, last Sunday we did kind of a review of where we had been. It had been a couple of months since we'd been in 2 Thessalonians. It's hard to imagine, but the length of time that we were out of 2 Thessalonians was longer than the length of time between Paul's writing of the first and second letters. That's just hard to even imagine, Uh, but it shows you how quickly those were written. It's an important reason they were written. Paul loved this church at Thessalonica, this young church, almost an infant church, except that God had given them an incredible depth very quickly. Here is a church that some elders sprouted up in, leaders, uh, people of great faith and courage who stood in a difficult situation and, of course, did all this to bring honor and glory to Christ. There's been some issues. We looked at them last Sunday. We don't want to dwell on them today. We want to try to cover this quickly. We won't cover it all today. Uh, But this is an important text. Saw a pastor from a couple hundred years ago who said that in these few verses is almost the entirety of theology. It gives you what God is doing, what He's been doing, what He's working to do, and how we are a part of it in Christ. And you see it here. I want to read the text again. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So as we come to it today, we want to look at just a few things. The, the theme of the sermon, as you see in the title, is Thanksgiving and Confidence. Paul has been talking about the struggles that they face in the micro and the macro, the struggles that all Christians face in a sense, and why they can stand firm. What is their basis of confidence? In whom do they put their trust? We spoke about this last week to some degree. We're going to come back to some of those similar themes today because Paul Uh, goes back there again to these themes. But as we do so, we want to look at three points. First of all, a reason for thanksgiving. A reason for thanksgiving. Second of all, a study in contrast. And then we want to close with a basis for confidence. Now as we come to this reason for thanksgiving, all we have to do is read why Paul is offering thanksgiving. Paul says, We are bound. Now again, this is that language of it's right that we do. It's fitting that we do. We need to do. In fact, we must do. We must give thanks to God always for you. So he's thanking God for these believers. And I want to reiterate, these are believers who are in difficult situation, in a difficult situation, persecuted, tried, tempted, challenged in their faith to stand boldly before God. So why does... Paul say gives thanks for them. He says, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Now what he's talking about here is God's electing love. God has chosen you to be His people. He has called you to be His people. You are His people. You are standing in this walk of faith by God's grace. Now, as you think about this, Paul says this is important to recognize. Because God has put you in a situation that is testing and trying you, but He's called you to stand in that situation. 
And therefore, he is going to enable you and equip you. I'm giving you a little cliff notes for where Paul's going to go into where our confidence is found. But Paul says, know this, you're not haphazardly in this situation. God has called you into this situation. He's going to use language a little bit later of standing fast, holding at arm strongly, in other words, military terminology, that you were in this situation, stand by God's grace. But it's not just that God has called them and elected them, things we've seen in Romans and even back in the Old Testament prophets, but he says here that God chose you to be what? The first fruits. The first fruits. Now, why is this important, this idea of first fruits? Paul is telling them God has called you for a mission that is bigger than just you. First fruits are what? In a harvest. You get that initial um, little bit of a harvest. But it's the sign, the picture, the promise that more is on its way. When Christ is the first fruits from the dead, it means there are others who will come also, right, into this resurrection life. There are many places where Paul uses this terminology of first fruits, but here I believe there's some debate over what Paul means specifically by it here, but I think he says, you are the first fruits that God has called in this town, Thessalonica. But there are more to be called. There are more to be delivered. There are more to be ministered to, more to hear the gospel, more who are going to join the people of God. And therefore, you need to be at work. You need to be recognizing that God has called you to a mission that is larger than yourselves. You know, if there's a message I think that Paul would have for the American church today, it's that our Christianity is so self-focused. What do I get? What's God going to do for me? And Paul is warning them here early on, look beyond yourself at how God is using you as part of His bigger mission and calling to reach others with the gospel. In fact, you see that Paul lays out this pattern here because he says, you were called through our gospel. Isn't that interesting wording? Paul is almost taking like an ownership stake in the gospel. I think what he means is, we were the ones that brought the gospel to you. We proclaimed it, and it was God's means of calling you into the people of God. As you heard the gospel proclaimed and recognized its truth, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. When the gospel is proclaimed, you heard it, you recognized the truth in it, you responded. Our gospel was preached. Now, Paul elsewhere calls it the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God. Here he says our gospel. It's our message. If you are in Christ, it is God's gospel, but it's now also your gospel. God has entrusted you to take it out into the world, to proclaim it, to share it, to tell others about it. And so Paul says, remember that we have reason to be thankful because you are the fruit of the work God has called us to. You are the fruit of the work God has called us to. Paul makes a, a big point of this in 1 Thessalonians, if you remember. Paul is very concerned not only that they stand true in the faith, but that if they didn't, what would it say of his work? You may remember that in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is very concerned that he have something to stand and present to the Lord. And Paul says, if I cannot trust that you are truly in Christ, then I stand empty-handed before the Lord. Paul says, I can't have that. I can't have that. So Paul is thankful to know that they are the first fruits, not only of God, but also of the ministry that God has called him to in Thessalonica. But all of this is based on an important truth. 
All of this is based on the fact that they are the beloved of the Lord. Look at verse 13 again. If you take the the clause out there, it says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. But in those commas, it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. God loves His people. He wouldn't send His Son to die if He didn't love His people. Now, the thing here that Paul wants to say is, is because God loves you, Paul says, you've been invited into the family of God. And by the way, a place you have a place at this table. You know, we speak about, and we've gone through uh, many texts through the years with communion services, but always we want to remember this, God has invited us to His table. There's no king anywhere that you can kick down the front door and say, I'm sitting at your table tonight. You have to be invited by a king. And this king invites you to his table. And my friends, Paul says, you've been invited. You are beloved. You are amongst the people of God. All of this here, uh, Paul is saying, is a reason for thanksgiving. You are the people of Christ. That's been revealed, by the way. It's not just some eschatological hope. Paul says, ultimately, we live in an eschatological hope, but it should reveal itself in the here and now. We've been talking about that. The end of 1 Thessalonians is all about how is your faith lived out in the here and now? Because I think uh, it would be correct to say biblically, if you have that eschatological hope, it should reveal itself in the Spirit's work in you now. This is one of the great Trinitarian things that you see in Scripture right here in this passage. Because, by the way, he's giving thanks to God for what has been done in Christ Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so again, Paul says, we have reason to give thanksgiving. But I want to come to our second point, and it's tied very much in with our catechism for today. The second point is called a study in contrasts. Do you notice that verse 13 starts with the word but? Now that's a contrasting word, isn't it? I wanted to take you to the mall today, but tells you something's changed, right? Notice what he says here. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. What is he contrasting that with? I'd have you remember that Paul is talking about the coming of an antichrist and and all these matters and how they were concerned that they'd already missed the day of the Lord and Paul said, you haven't. Because there first must be an apostasia, a falling away. And then there must be this lawless one come. And those things have not yet occurred. So Paul says, you know, we're not there yet. But as he's talking about the lawless one, listen to what he says. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Paul says, you're in your state today because of the working of Christ. But there is another one who is coming. This is an important word Paul is using theologically here. Who is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You may remember we went through that. Paul makes the point lying wonders. In a way, false wonders. Satan has no real creative power. He has corrupting power. And that's what you see here. And so again, he says he's coming with lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception. He's a deceiver. All unrighteous deception among those 
who perish. Just as Christ's people are hearing Christ's voice, what he's saying is as the Antichrist comes, those who who are perishing will rush to him. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now continue on for this. We want to think about this just for a moment. Paul is contrasting the people of God who love the truth and the people of the world who hate the truth. They do not love the truth, Paul says. They will not receive the truth. And then Paul says something that shocks many people. It shouldn't if you've read Romans chapter 1, but it does shock people. It says, for this reason God will send them strong delusion. Strong delusion. That they should believe the lie. My friends, that's a strong truth, a hard truth. But if you turn back to Romans 1, Paul explains why. As he says, these people who exchange the glory of God for the worship of created things, people who, although they know God, right, turn against Him. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I've made this point many times. Paul's using language of trying to stuff an extra blanket or something in a chest, and you're having to kind of crunch it down, get your weight into it. Paul says they're suppressing any knowledge of God. They do not want it. They're not doing it innocently, Paul says. He says they do it in unrighteousness. Now, my friends, that's a hard truth. But it's right here in the Scriptures time and again. And what Paul says in chapter 1 is God gives them over. Uh, That word actually in the Greek is almost like a shove. And here again you find it. He says that God sends them strong delusion. In other words, they're going that path. God says, go. If that's what you seek, if that's what you desire, go. Now that's what Paul's contrasting against. A people who do not love truth, a people who have no hope in the people of Christ because they have uh, chased after uh, sin and evil, death and lies. And Paul says in contrast, but we are bound to give thanks for you. And if you look through there, it tells you why. We've already looked at some of it. But Paul says that they are being sanctified by the Spirit and have a belief in the truth. Well, what does Paul say the truth is? He says, it's that to which you've been called by our gospel for the attaining of glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do they stand fast then? They stand fast in the truth. You'll see it there in verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now, Paul's giving two ways that they would have learned what the truth is. You have heard it by word of mouth. When I came to you, Paul says, when Timothy came to you, when Silas came to you, you would have heard the truth. Hold on to what we taught you. But also you've received letters. You've also received epistles. Hold fast to what is told you there. Now, what does Paul mean when he says hold fast or stand fast? Well, that's a military term, isn't it? To stand fast. To stand on guard. To stand prepared. To stand ready. Paul says, as we said last week, don't be shaken. Don't be unaware. Don't be caught with your guard down. Don't be caught snoozing. Stand fast. Hold the traditions. And that word is uh, to hold strongly. Now, what are the traditions? Those things we've told you that we've passed down. Now, we want to be very careful here because 
Uh, verses like this get misused from time to time. And people will say, uh, well, you know, I've read that the Pope says, hold fast the traditions. Hold firm, hold strong the traditions, the church traditions. I tried to make this point last week. Paul's not talking about the traditions of men here. He's not talking about what Paul prefers or what he likes or what Paul has dreamed up or thought up. Paul is talking about those things that were given to him as an apostle of Christ. That's what he means here. Those things that I have given you, that I have told you, are the word of the Lord. Those things stand fast, hold strongly. I don't think if Paul told him one night that he prefers one thing for dinner over another, he means that's the equivalent of the word of God. That's a personal preference. But Paul says, when I tell you these things as the word of the Lord, the Lord hath said, that's a whole different thing. And Paul, as an apostle, was in a unique position, of course, to bring forth this. But he says, listen, the things I taught you in person, the things that I wrote to you in that first epistle, those things stand fast, hold strongly. Don't be shaken. Don't be blown to and fro. Don't let them go. Don't be convinced of something different. Don't be misled. Now, all of that is, Paul says, a study of contrasts. Because the world is being misled. You know, you can think about Paul when he goes to the Areopagus and he confronts in Athens all these worldviews, all these philosophies. And it's interesting, uh, the Athenians were willing to take almost any worldview, any philosophy, and listen to it and incorporate it. But they didn't like what Paul had to say, really. Because Paul says you can't really take ours, our message, our gospel, and incorporate it into your worldview. It crashes with your worldview. Paul says, I walked through your streets and I saw a tomb to an unknown God. I've come today to tell you about that unknown God. To tell you that He is the only true living God above all other gods. The only one worthy of worship. And in fact, He demands that all these other gods be put away. My friends, that was a bridge too far for the Athenians, and it's a bridge too far for our world. That says, eh, I like the idols. I like conflicting viewpoints. And my friends, uh, I've made this point many times. You'll hear many Christians that will argue these sorts of things. Well, you know, uh, I can be a Christian and still dabble in some of these other things. Oprah Winfrey had an argument one time on her show where she said there can't just be one way. And a lady in the audience said, well, what about Jesus? And she said, what about him? And the lady said, he said he's the only way. She said there can't just be one way. This was a woman at the time, I don't know about now, but she professed to be a Christian. My friends, the world loves many ways, many wisdoms, many faiths, many religions, many gods. Paul says you've been called by the one true living God. My friends, worship Him. Give Him glory. Don't be like the world, running to and fro, blown back and forth, chasing after every new idea, wind of doctrine, everything like that. Don't be like that. I won't go too much further down this path because it's what we talked about last Sunday, wasn't it? But my friends, don't be shaken. Stand fast. Now Paul has a confidence that they'll do that. Why? Well, I want to close with this. What is Paul's basis for confidence? Well, Paul tells you. It's in God. 
His confidence is not in the Thessalonians being smarter than the other churches. It's not in the Thessalonians being braver than the other churches. In fact, there's nowhere that Paul says, I know you're going to make it because I've seen something different in you than in all other Christians. They're just human beings called by the grace of God. Paul says, what I know and have seen time and again is what God does in and through people. God has called you. He has prepared you. He is strengthening you. How can you hold fast these traditions? How can you hold fast to the truth in difficult times? It's not by believing that the strength is in you. Paul says it's by holding fast to the truth and trusting in it. Well, what, are, what is the truth? The promises of God. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you stand, will God strengthen you and embolden you to stand in the day of trouble? Well, Paul says, my God tells me in both the early writings of the New Testament church and also in the Old Testament writings that God will do just that. Isn't that David's prayer? Vindicate me, O Lord. Strengthen me that we read in the Psalms today. God, I'm putting my trust in you, David sang, to vindicate me. I can't vindicate myself. Others stand wrongly against me. Where is my defense? Is it not in the Lord? Paul says in the same way, who will you put your confidence in? Yourself? You'll fail. You'll fail. Paul says, put your trust in the Lord and His empowerment and His calling and His grace and His love and His strength. You know, this is not the only place that Paul speaks about this. If you think about the church at Rome, Paul was dealing with the people who were uh, in a very similar situation, not openly persecuted yet in the same way, but a people who uh, were having some difficulties. They were living in the shadow, if you will, of uh, Caesar. And Caesar didn't like rivals, as you can imagine. Most kings don't like rivals. So they have some dangers, some challenges that they must face. And there's a question that they have about what does it mean to be in Christ and who are the people of God and all these questions that Roman is working through. And Paul lays out the hope and promise of God for his people. And you can imagine Paul comes to this question, difficult question. What is the end for believers? And Paul walks through it here in Romans chapter 8. He walks through it at length about how uh, our hope goes beyond just salvation in this world, but salvation eternally and glorification as we enter into a new heavens and earth as God's final plan. But you can imagine maybe the question well, how can we be sure that's what's going to happen? How can we have confidence in the promise of God? And Paul's answer would naturally be because God has made them. A promise is only as good as those who make it. I might promise you something, and I might fail to deliver, though I would try to deliver. But I say, I'll take care of it. Maybe it doesn't get taken care of the way I'd hoped it would, or you would ask it to. My promise is only as good as my ability to kind of control the events around the promise, which is very limited. But God controls all things. He's omnipotent. If He makes a promise, there's no emergency that's going to get in the way. There's no movement of history or events that are going to interfere with His ability to keep it. And Paul wants us to know that. Paul wants us to know that what God has promised, He will deliver. 
What is the basis of our confidence in the promises of God? God Himself. That He is able to deliver what He promises. It's offered by God to His beloved people, guaranteed by the One who is omnipotent. So Paul says His love for His people guarantees all His promises. So then you come to a question. Can anything overcome God's love for His people? Well, I've got an answer for you. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to think about it. I just get to read it from Romans chapter 8. Can anything overcome the love of God for His people? So here's what Paul writes. Beginning of Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Now listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul says, who can stand against us if God is for us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the idea. Who can even bring a charge against us? Who has standing in the courtroom of God? Who has standing in the courtroom of God to even bring a charge against us? And Paul answers that. No one. Because it is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, also is risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. So now here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us? Who can break that bond of God's love for His people? Who can do it? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. All these earthly forces, can any of them do it? Paul answers, no, as it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says nothing can do it. No created thing. That means only one uncreated could do it, and God won't because He's the one who loves us. So my friends, Paul stands in confidence not in the Thessalonians, but in God. Because God keeps His promises. And so my friends, as Paul says, as you are being tried and tested, as you are in conflict and trouble, stand fast on the promises of God. Because they are good no matter what the situation looks like in the present. They transcend the present. They are eternal because God Himself is eternal and has made the promises. They are good yesterday, they are good today, they are good tomorrow, they are good forever. If God has made them, God will keep them. My friends, Paul says, take confidence in that. Amen.